good to see you. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. My name is Luke, and I am a workaholic. I have to tell you. I'm not, not to even make fun of anything like Alcoholics Anonymous. I really am addicted to work. Um, and for much of my life, I have been restless uh, at a place without rest. And if God did not tell me to rest, I would not do it. I simply wouldn't do it. I might see the warning signs for needing rest pop up here and there, something that exposes a crack I have in my life. But unless the tremor is high enough on the Richter scale of my life, I simply will not stop. And usually by that point in time, it's too late, right? I am this big raging dumpster fire of chemical imbalances, sleep imbalances, physical imbalances. I can't relate to people well. I can't think correctly. I'm just depressed, angry, frustrated, and restless. So to be fair with you today, I am preaching this with a little bit of a limp, okay? Some scar tissue went into this sermon. Um, and of all my goals in this new year of 2015, of all the goals that I have, I have to say that my number one goal is to be an expert rester, is to be excellent in how I rest. I think some of you are like me in growing up and not really seeing resting very well, not seeing it very biblical. Resting to me growing up always meant wasting time, right? Any of you ever in that group? Just wasting time, to me you're lazy, means you're weak to rest. That's the way I've always seen it. So whenever I have to talk about rest today, I know I need to redefine it a little bit for you and for me, because whenever I say rest, I'm talking about a godly rest that isn't weak. I'm talking about a godly rest that isn't lazy. It's not a sin. It's not a lot of things. Rest isn't leisure. I have to say that as we define it. Leisure is leisure. Leisure can actually be quite exhausting when you think about it. In, in my flesh, it finds it very easy to be at leisure. I don't have to work very hard at that. Uh, rest is not isolation. That's also something that my flesh craves. It's easy for me to just shut people out, shut God out, shut the family out, shut the world out, shut work out, shut everything out, and just be insulated. That's easy to do. Rest is an escape. Godly rest isn't even sleep, believe it or not. All those things are man-made. There's something that are counterfeit. It's easy for us to grab a hold of with our hands and say, that will rest me. It'll be what I need. Rest is literally what we do when we're not doing anything. It's what we do when we're not doing anything at all. It's, it's being unrushed. Godly rest is being unplanned. It's being unproductive. It's not creating. It's not striving. It's not fixing. It's not solving. Justin Buzzard, who's written a lot of things on the Sabbath, and I've, I've appreciated a lot of what he said, he, he defines it this way. For him, Sabbath is 24 hours of rest and play, a time when we remember that God is in control, that He has lavished our lives with His grace, that He is at work while we are at rest, and that we glorify God through our rest, through 24 hours of being absolutely unproductive right? Unproductive. It's just existing and enjoying Him. Just enjoying God. It means listening to the thoughts in our head and making them obedient to God. Meditating on the Lord. 
means allowing him to rejuvenate us, recalibrate us, refresh us, reset us. Godly rest means something different than what the world says. And now last week as we were finishing up an old year and about to start a new one, we talked about being intentional with our lives. You can find this online and there's a blog that goes along with it, but we looked at being intentional with goals, intentional with strategies. And what I'd like to do is dovetail that into this week and next week as we talk about being intentional with rest, which is difficult to think of because we don't typically think of being intentional or aggressive and rest in the same sentence. But rest is something that mankind as a whole has always chased after, but it seems to be that football that as soon as we catch, we fumble it. We don't really know what to do with it. And mankind will do crazy things, crazy things, in order to get rest. We clamor over each other. We scratch and we claw. We work ten times harder than we should just to retire three or four years early so that we can rest. We strap explosives to ourselves, go into public places, and blow ourselves up to fast-track it to a place called paradise so that we could finally be at a place called rest. We hypermedicate ourselves to get chemicals in our body to speak to our brain to convince us that we are at rest. It's something that we have always done crazy things to do. People will even join monasteries and seminaries to get rest. The internal clamor, the noise inside that is restless. If you've done any studying of Martin Luther, one of the main internal key reasons he joined a monastery, he joined the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt, And whenever he did that, the leading reason is because he had an internal restlessness. He had a place of no peace, and he wanted to ensure himself not just an eternal rest, but but an ability for him to just sleep well at night, knowing that he is covered. Now, before Martin Luther of the Reformation, he was just doing things, doing things, doing things, and he thought if he could just get smarter and starve his body and go into a monastery, that maybe he could finally find that rest. We hunger for it. We want it. Yet we're also in this abusive relationship with work. So we're in this abusive relationship with work, we're in this abusive relationship with rest, and it's all tangled up. But the Bible shows us how to untangle it because we don't see work or rest in a very biblical way. Instead, we're kind of caught up in this innovative storm that the culture produces. The culture will try to convince you that you should eternally and always be at rest. Back in the 1950s, there was this national discussion of sorts, the early 1950s. And this is when technology was really getting up to a gallop, right? And people were starting to notice that they could actually work less because technology was working more for them. So the discussion went like this. What are we going to do with all of our leisure time? Because pretty soon our work week is going to be down to 20 hours or so. What are we going to do with all that extra time, says the 1950s? Has anyone found an answer to that yet? Because I think we've tripled that. I mean, we are working more. We are working harder. And that's because technology always has us accessible and technology always has us on the clock. There's always a deal being cut somewhere. There's always an ability to purchase something anytime, 24-7. Soon drones will drop them off at your doorstep right after you buy them Sunday at 2 a.m. in the morning. You can do it. Commerce is all the time. That means the industry is going all the time. It means people are always working. Our culture is always working. 
in what used to be a local marketplace has gone global. So 100 years ago, if you owned a shoe store, your only competition was down the street, across the street, across town. Now it's global, which means you're working all the time. And you're always accessible, too. Always accessible. Push notifications. Thanks for that, right? Your phone always letting you know that someone's trying to get in touch with you. Yesterday, we had a clinic with our, our planter um, residents and our pastoral residents on self-care. And airplane mode came up because I'm a big user of airplane mode. I love airplane mode. So usually between 6 and 9 or 6 and 10 every day, that's a daily Sabbath for me. That's a daily time of rest for me. And I've got my phone on airplane mode most of the time. I'm not perfect, but most of the time, right? So we're discussing this. But I've got to be honest with you before any of you get impressed with that. There is a twinge of anxiety that goes off in the back of my heart that says, if you do that, something big is going to happen and you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. This will be the day. Some, someone's going to need you and it's going to be radically important and you're going to let them down. Something huge is going to happen and you're going to have no idea of it. Because I'm used to the same thing you're used to, which is the same thing we've grown up in a culture that we are always accessible and it's not just technology. Culture in general has contributed to what Matthew Arnold, he's an old poet, Matthew Arnold, he, he basically coined the term hurry-up sickness. In his poem called The Scholar Gypsy, he says it's the strange disease of modern life, our hurry-up sickness. And the disease is, is now being busy is a value judgment. To be busy is a value judgment. To be busy means to not be lazy. And to be lazy means to be in sin. To be busy means you're not in sin. That's why whenever we greet each other, whenever we're shaking hands with each other and someone says, how are you doing? We usually say busy. Why do we do that? Because we want them to know that we're not loafing. We want them to know that there is value to our life and we are producing and we are creating and we are doing things and we are so busy, I almost don't even have time to tell you how busy I am. To tell you why I am busy would take too much time because I'm so busy, so I'm just going to tell you I am busy, right? How are you doing? Busy. Do hey, good, but busy. I do it all the time. I probably did it this morning three or four times. This is what nobody says to the question, how are you doing? Well, I'm rested. I'm rested. I'm anything but busy. Anything but busy. In fact, I'm bored. You got something for me to do? Because I'm just cruising right now. Nobody says that because nobody wants to be seen as that person, right? So what are we? We are busy. Culture assigns value to you if you are busy. I had a friend, when I say friend, he used to be a friend about 20 years ago and he died recently. I've not been in touch with him for probably the better part of 20 years, but we were really close. He was one of my first mentors, so I knew him, right? And so I, as I go back and I read his obituary and I read about what someone else wrote about his life, what was interesting is, is it didn't name who he really was. I didn't even recognize the guy in the obituary. It talked about what he did. It gave me a, a cool list of his jobs and how he launched from one job to the next and how he was on this board and that board and accomplished this and accomplished that. It was brilliantly written. I just couldn't recognize the person in it. I've said up here before, there's been an evolution in obituaries from the turn of the century, turn of last century, all the way up until now. If you even have clippings of obituaries from the early 1900s, read them, reread them. It will give you character traits. She was a benevolent woman. He was a hospitable man. It will give you um, great ideas of what made that person tick, but if you look at obituaries now, it is Joe was a plumber. 
Jack was on the board of this. Why? Because our culture assigns value to what we do, not who we are. And we get this. And we are in a hurry-up sickness culture. So why is it important for us to crawl out of this culture's expectation of always working all the time? Why is it important? Why is Sabbath rest for us so vitally important for us? I mean, think about this. Why did God even design it? You've got to ask yourself those questions. Why did God even make it? He didn't have to, just so you know that. He had boundless imagination. He had no guardrails. He could have done anything he wanted. Why did he do it? Why is he, This is an important question because all of us, to a certain degree in this room, man, woman, and child, all of us in this room, we struggle with hard labor and heavy burdens. Hard labor, heavy burdens. Not just physically, but spiritually. Hard labor, heavy burdens. In fact, some of you, you can't even tell where the burden is heavy physically or spiritually. You just know you're tired. Sometimes you can't even tell a difference. It's overlapped. I'm just tired. I don't know, Luke, if it's spiritual tired. I don't know if I'm just emotionally tired. I don't know if I'm just sick of people, sick of work. I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm just restless. I just need rest. You're so chronically tired. You're so chronically worn out. You don't even know where to start. And there is truth to that, that it does overlap. If internally you were heavily burdened and you were heavy in labor internally, doesn't it affect you externally? What does stress do to the body? A litany of things, a a ton of things, right? And this is true for all of you. Not just you who punch a clock, but if you're a housewife, this is true for you. It's easy to overwork. It's easy to abuse work and abuse rest as a housewife. It's easy to do it as a college student. It's easy to do it as a guy who punches a clock. It's easy to do it as a guy who works for the man. It's easy to do it as a guy who is the man. But the good news for us today is God, in his brilliance, has come to rescue us from our hurry-up sickness. He has come to rescue us from overworking, not just physically, but spiritually. Spiritually, God has done that. This is what Tim Keller has always called the work behind the work. Christ has come to save and rescue us from the work under the work or the work behind the work the work behind the work is the stuff we do to get more than a paycheck or the stuff we do to get more than anything than what would be expected it's actually possible to work 70 hours a week in the physical i'm talking commerce and physical it's it's easy to work 70 hours a week and not be overworking and then work 50 hours the very next week and definitely be overworking because there's something behind the work that you're doing. You're not there to get a paycheck anymore. You're there to get validity. You're there to get an identity, to manufacture an idea of who you are. This work is who I am because you want that on your obituaries. You better work hard to get it. It's more than a paycheck at that point, right? Or security. We do it to manufacture a sense of security. That provides the work behind the work or the work under the work. And I know this well, because I often work hard, and then I work hard underneath working hard. And I have to understand the same thing we all do today. Jesus came to rescue us, not just from the hurry-up sickness in our physical lives, but he came to give us those things that we chase after all the time. I've already been given a security in the fact that God has become my Sabbath. He's already given me an identity. He's already given me comfort. And he is my glory. I don't have to chase after those things and work. 
or people or relationships. I don't have to work behind the work. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, this won't be up on the screen, by the way. I'm just going to read it to you. I didn't get them on the computer in time. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, does that not speak to every single person in this room? I cannot even read this, even on a good day. I cannot read this without going, yes, right here. That's me. Burdened, working hard, physically, spiritually. God being the brilliant architect that he is, he engineered us to need rest. That's how he designed us. And he didn't have to do it. But he did. He could have made us to where we needed no rest. Think about that as an existence, by the way, because it was possible. He could have made it to where we needed no rest, boundless energy all the time. We didn't need to reset, retreat, solitude, none of that. He could have made it to where we didn't even need to sleep. Think about that. He could have made it to where there was no night. Daytime all the time, working all the time, no sleep, no rest. He could have done that. Eternally industrious. He had no boundaries, no budget, no restrictions, just imagination. Yet God, in his brilliance, tips his hand a little bit and shows us why he did this. We're going to look at two passages. We're going to look at one this week and one next week that shows God tipping his hand to show us the purpose and the beauty of godly rest and entering godly rest. The first way he shows us what he is doing and the purpose behind it is in his law, believe it or not. The fourth commandment, which we're about to read. All right, so let's look in our Bibles. Exodus 20. Let me pray really quick before we do this because this can be a controversial topic. I don't know why it is, but it can be. So, Father, I thank you so much for your word, Lord, that provokes us. And yes, Father, we will read your word and we will interpret it. But, Father, we really need our hearts to be interpreted. I need my heart to be interpreted. Show me, Lord. Show us where it is that we struggle with your word. And, Lord, show us clearly who you are in this. As we read, show us clearly what you have done for us that our hearts would say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Exodus 20. If you're in your Bible or in your app, and I'm going to jump down to verse 8. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. We're going to talk about that next week, why he said all of that stuff just then. Verse 11, this is why though, this is a big, this is a big clue for us. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. He did two things, he blessed it and he made it holy. I want you to remember that. What God is doing right here in his law is he is connecting this commandment to creation. He's pointing back. He's making a connection and drawing a line to Genesis 2. I'm going to read that to you. Don't worry about turning there. Genesis 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God did what? He did two things. He blessed it, and he made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Blessed it, and he made it holy. Whenever something is blessed, it is given favor. Things that are blessed, they produce. There's life. They flourish. That's what happens when things are blessed. 
When something is made holy, it is separated and set apart for special services, set apart from what? From that which is common. So this Sabbath day, and listen, the day, and this is probably as good a time as, to tell you as any, for us today, I'm going to tell you it is not and need not be a set day. I'm not going to tell you it's Saturday. I'm not going to tell you it's Sunday. There are sermons for that. Go and find them online. I'm not even going to spend the time to do that up here because you would all not come back next week. It's boring, right? What history has done to transfer the Lord's Day from Saturday to Sunday. It says six days work and one day rest. Make it whatever day you need. I'm working today. I'm on the clock. This is not my Sabbath, right? I have one. It's not today. So we're not going to get caught up in what the day is. All right? We're not going to do that. But what I would like to look at is the fact that it was blessed and made holy. There is a time that is set apart from other time. It's not a time where we worship God more because we worship God in our work. We worship God every day. The day is not special for a special extra credit kind of care. It's just a day of rest. And it's blessed. There is favor in it. There's growth in it. There is life in it. It's on the seventh day that God stands back and he says, this is really good. I mean, look at this. Look how good it is. I'm going to stop. I'm just going to stop. I'm going to cease right here. Not because he's tired. He's God. He's, <laughs> he's boundless energy. He says, I'm going to stop. I'm going to cease and rest. That's what the word Sabbath means. Cease and rest. So that's what the seventh day was for him. The seventh day for us is to cease and to rest. Originally, God ceased in rest, and he says, stand back and look at my glory. A seventh day for us is to stand back and say, God, look at you and your glory, where we join God in what he says, and we celebrate the work with him, where God looks and he says, look what I've done. Luke, look what I've done. As a chronic overworker, look what I've made. Look what I've done when you didn't do anything. Look at the gospel that I thought of. Look at what I was able to do when you couldn't do anything. It's beautiful. It connects us to God's grace. Now in this text today, this Exodus text, the Sabbath rest is a commandment. It's on a list of brand new commandments given to his brand new nation. And it's surrounded with other commandments like do not murder and do not steal. <laughs> but this is the one we don't follow. It's really one of the only ones we struggle with. For various reasons, which we'll go over today and we'll go over next week, for various reasons, it gets demoted to B-League, right? With giving and hospitality and mission and community. The things that we do when we feel like we have the time for it or the funds for it. It's the stuff that's kind of optional that we think God might think it's kind of semi-important, but for us it's kind of optional because it's Old Testament, I think, I'm not sure, right? That's how we reason. Now, we agree as a church, as the leadership, that these commandments, the Ten Commandments, are not commandments that we follow in order to gain a relationship with God, but they are commandments that we live because we have a relationship with God. We've already secured a relationship with God because of one who was able to follow the commandments. So what it really is, is, is a list of a description of a life displayed before God of someone who worships and loves God. So in other words, your failure with this fourth commandment and you do fail, don't you? Because I do. In our failure of this fourth commandment, as a Christian, it does not jeopardize your standing or your favor from God's perspective and his point of view. It doesn't. Well, why, Luke? Because Jesus did it 
perfectly. Jesus was able to perfectly walk under the Ten Commandments. And then what he did is he took his perfectly lived performance, his perfectly lived life, and he substituted it for ours and took our imperfectly lived life. The substitutionary atonement, that's what the scholars call it, where he traded with us. He made a substitution with us. And because he did this, the work was finished on his shoulders that the rest would be placed on ours. He is our Sabbath rest. You see, for the, the ancient Jews, this commandment meant something different. For the ancient Jews, this showed God's terms. And it showed a desperate need for a better sacrifice because for all their, their blood and goats and bulls, they couldn't keep their slate clean. They just couldn't do it. It just showed the, the depth of their depravity and how much they needed a new Savior, a, a better priest, a better sacrifice. On this side of the cross where you and I are at, we see a gift. We see a gift. It's a gift God has given us. The law has a different role now than it did then. It has a different role. It's not bad. It doesn't have a black hat on. It's not against grace. It's just its claim on you has changed because one who has lived perfectly has given you rest because he did all the work and he did it perfectly. So if all that's true, then what do we do with this? What do we do with the fourth commandment then, today? Here's the answer. We follow it like the other nine commandments. Okay? Now, I know there's already going to be pushback rising up in you, and I understand that, and I've been there. But we follow this like the other nine commandments, not because it gains us anything extra. It's because it's just the simple fruit of a life lived in worship is one who enjoys Jesus. It's just simply that. I know it sounds legalistic, We've been raised to believe that we don't have to do this today, and anyone who pushes it on my plate, they're just being legalistic. Luke, it sounds legalistic. You're saying we have to follow a commandment. It sounds like you're being moralistic. But if I came to you and said, you should honor your marriage, you should not murder anyone, none of you would say you're being legalistic. No one would say that. It's interesting. Alistair Begg, when he was asked about this, he was asked the question, why does this ordinance have a place for us today? His answer, because it finds itself between commandment number three and commandment number five. That's why it has a place for us today. Now certainly, we don't kill people today. We don't stone them for ignoring the Sabbath. Just like we don't stone people for defiling their marriage, and we don't stone people for dishonoring their mother and father. We don't do that. But just because you remove the penalty of an ordinance, it doesn't mean you're removing the ordinance. Well, then, Luke, why is it an ordinance? And why is it even an ordinance? I mean, it bugs the question. The answer is because it's a gift from God to you. It's a gift that God wants you to continually unpack, to continually unwrap and look at its beauty over and over again. It's a gift of enjoyment. It's a gift of life. It's an exciting, life-giving gift for you. I don't think we ever really see it this way, though. I think we get cluttered up and understand the Sabbath in weird ways. We see the Sabbath rest to be full of restrictions. The Sabbath for us is a day of things you can't do, things you should not do. And this is definitely how the religious leaders of old handled it. In that 400-year time span between Malachi and Christ, the religious leaders of the day, they managed to hang so many weird laws and stipulations and mandates on the Sabbath that it made it something that the people hated. It was no longer a gift. If you were to be alive during that time and you came up and you said, hey, brother, you excited about the Sabbath tomorrow? 
They'd have been like, Sabbath. I guess I'll chain myself to the bed tomorrow. If we're still allowed to do that, aren't we? You know, I mean, they would have had this bad attitude because you just can't do anything. Corny laws added. You couldn't drag a stick in the ground on the Sabbath day because it was considered plowing. You couldn't wear a bow in your hair, ladies, because it was considered bearing a weight, holding a weight. You could walk five steps, but then you would need to pause before you walked a sixth step, or else it would have been work. And you definitely can't enjoy any of it. They hated it. It needed to be rescued, this thing called the Sabbath. Hey, our culture's not much different. Straight up, our culture's not much different. This is why Jesus came and he did all of his cool stuff. When? On the Sabbath. Do the research on your own. Look at Luke 6. Start looking through. I think Luke 6 has probably two of the bigger ones that he did on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, was. that's when he came and he said, hey, give me your shriveled hand. Boom. Hey, pick up your mat and walk. Boom. That's when he was in the field hanging out with the guys, eating wheat on a day he should not have been eating wheat. What is he doing? He's doing all this fun stuff to show there is life here. It's favored. It's blessed. It's for you. It's a gift. Look. Quit making it corny. Just stop it. Just stop it. Stop it. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. Abundant life. This is why he says in Mark, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift for you. It's a gift. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, he says. And I find I am with these people because what is meant to be a gift for us is now seen as legalism. It's handled as an obstacle. We look for theological loopholes to get around it. We justify anything we can to manage it and avoid it. We hear the word today and we think it's crippling us. And I think the Sabbath in America especially has been informed probably more by weird teaching, weird practice, weird movies. Anyone see Chariots of Fire? Great movie, except for not really, right? Because everyone's wanting this guy to run, run in the Olympics. I'm like, run in the Olympics, brother. It's okay. Jesus is cool with that. Weird stuff. Blue laws. Anyone excited about blue laws still? I still can't even figure that out. Listen, you can leave here today and go buy some really good stuff today. If you're having an anniversary, can't go buy champagne today. Why? The liquor stores are shut down. Why? Blue laws. Left over from prohibition saying that today is the Lord's day and you can't buy alcohol on this day because this is a day you ought to be in church, right? Of course, 84% of Knoxville is at home right now, so the blue laws aren't quite working, and they frustrate me. It's weird. Weird stuff on the radio. Weird stuff, I mean, don't get your theology of the Sabbath off the radio or TV or anything like that. It's weird, and it influences the way we see it more than even the Bible does. But this is a wonderful day. Whatever that day is for you, whatever that block of time, maybe it's two half days, maybe it's an evening and a morning, whatever it is for you, it's a beautiful time for you to rest and get refreshed, rejuvenated. Do what recharges you. Do what shows you God's grace. Sit and just relax in the beautiful things around you that God has done. He's done some beautiful things, and he's revealing it to us. It doesn't mean taking away laughter. It doesn't mean taking away fun. It means the opposite. Why? It's okay to laugh. It's okay to have fun. Those are forms of God's grace, and they recharge us. Throw the kids around the house. Wrestle with them. Right? 
Make out with your wife. Then start a campfire legally, right? <laughs> Drink a glass of wine if your conviction allows. Smoke a cigar if your conviction allows. Read a book. Write a poem. Watch the tree sway in the wind. You can't really do that. There's no leaves on the trees because it is winter. But do you follow what I'm saying? Get caught up on your reading. Meditate. Memorize. Pray. Take a nap. Find a hammock. What is it that recharges you? How are you rejuvenated? It's a wonderful day. Why do we see the Sabbath as bad news? I think there's two big reasons. One is theological confusion and one is heart confusion. And I think one is bigger than the other. Theologically, I think we're confused. I think many people feel like it's void today. It's not a law for us today. Of course, we can't really explain that. We definitely can't defend it well. We just heard somebody say that once and they were smarter than us, so we just put it in our own systematic theology and that's what we believe. Right? But Jesus said he is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. That means he can do whatever he wants with it. That's what you do when you're a Lord. And Jesus didn't come to destroy the Sabbath. He came to rescue it. To recover it from people who had, I guess, changed it over time. He didn't come to abolish the Sabbath, but to dig it up from underneath all the sediment that had been tossed on it. He didn't come to abolish the use of the Sabbath. He came to abolish the abuse of the Sabbath. And I know... And some of you are probably already texting in this question. Colossians 2 is a passage that some people use where their theological struggle is found. Out of fairness, I'll say it. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These, key here, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Correct. Correct. We agree with Paul. We agree with this passage. Those things are a shadow. We are not to make judgments of salvation based on what people eat and what they do on what day versus another day, right? We agree that you don't have to look like the Jewish culture in order to be saved. We agree with this, that there's freedom in what we eat. There's freedom in when we celebrate one day versus another. So we don't make judgments of salvation on that. We agree with this. But... Marriage, marriage is also a shadow of things to come. Because <laughs> there is a, a bigger groom, and we are part of his bride. Communion is also a shadow of things to come. And why do we celebrate those? They're a gift to you. They're a gift to you. Marriage is a gift to us. Again, God could have thought of any way to take care of business. Marriage. Communion was his idea. Could have done anything. It's communion. Why? For a gift for you. Jesus is now our Sabbath rest for every day and for every second. Right? I don't think the real issue is theological, though. If they are, text in your questions. All right? We'll do the best we can. I don't think the real issue is theological. I think the real issue is the heart. I think we're afraid of putting away all the distractions, of sitting still and being alone. I think we're afraid of what we'll find. The depth of my fear, I'm afraid of what's left over when all the work stops and I'm unproductive. When the time is not planned anymore and I'm not creating, fixing, solving, 
I'm afraid of what I'll find. The emptiness. The lack. The struggle. We're afraid that when we are not producing and creating, we're absent of value. Our value is gone, and we don't like that. We don't like that. Blaise Pascal, he says, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. I feel him. <laughs> I'm there. Sitting alone, sitting still is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, especially when there's unfinished business around you. We loathe unfinished business. We loathe it. We hate it. We don't trust that the work will get done if we stop working. We don't trust that it will be thought of if we quit thinking about it. We just don't trust. But let me serve you here a little bit. You will, as morose as this sounds, you will die with unfinished business. Your days will end with unfinished business as you fall asleep. Your weeks will stop with unfinished business. You will leave this planet with unfinished business. I buried my dad last year, and now he was retired. He was retired. His work was done, right? And not like halfway retired where he jet sets and does some consulting, right? He was like backstroking in the pool retired, like, I'm out of here. See you later. You know, he was just enjoying his latter twilight years and total retirement. Yet when I went into his office to take care of the estate, you know what I found? A ton of unfinished business for a guy who was retired. An inbox full of emails. A desk full of bills that needed to be paid, to-do lists, conversations he wanted to have, things he needed to get done. We will die with unfinished business. This is what the Sabbath does. The Sabbath is a war cry for us. It's a war cry twice in the Word of God. We see in big form, God say something like or exactly to, it is finished. Twice, not just once, twice. Whenever he was in creation, he says, I'm done, I'm stopping, I'm ceasing, creation is finished. What is he saying? I am resting now because my work is done. I have worked, now I'm resting. When else do we see it? We see it on the cross. Jesus saying, it is finished. His work is done, and he gives us the rest. He gives us the rest. Creation is connected to this. Once when God was rested from all of his work, now Jesus has given us the rest from all of his work. And what the Sabbath does is it sets us free, hear me, from the constant pressure of needing to be a finished product. The Sabbath sets you free from the pressure of needing to be a finished product. Our life, I mean, it feels so unfinished all the time, doesn't it? Mine does. It feels like a car. You ever had that car? It's just always something. New windshield wipers, now the wheels went out. New wheels, now you can't get that smell out, whatever that is. It means always something. Always feeling unfinished. Jesus sets us free from this. I am unfinished, and I rest in a finished life of Jesus. I am unfinished, and I rest in the life of a finished Jesus. Hear me. I am unfinished and I rest in the life of an unfinished or a finished Jesus. What he has done deploys rest to me. So for me in 2015, for me personally, one of the greatest marks of my maturity I expect to be resting. Resting. Because why? Because it's finished. 
because it's sim- it simply is finished. But Luke, you're unfinished. Yeah, I'm going to die that way. But I can rest. I can put things down, both in my heart and with my hands. I can say, let that be done for now. It will always be unfinished. It takes a lot of trust to do this, and that's why I'm not good at it. It takes a lot of trust to rest in an unfinished state. But Jesus loves an unfinished you. God loves the unfinished version of you because he's satisfied with the finished version of Jesus. Right? That's what the gospel is. So as the team comes up, I don't even know where they're at. They're probably back there. But as the team comes up, there's a couple things that I wanted to end with. And next week will be much more practical. Today I felt like I need to chisel into some hearts a little bit because that's what I need for myself. But we can worship by entering God's rest. One of the ways we worship by entering God's rest is trusting. As I just said, it requires a lot of trust to do this. To lay down. I mean, when we go to sleep, isn't that what we're doing? We're just trusting that things are going to be okay while we're asleep. It's trusting, letting go of our anxieties, letting go of the pressures and the expectations and trusting that God will be God. That's worship. Also, it's worship when we rest in God because we are able to be reminded and enjoy God's gospel. It connects us to grace once again. The Sabbath is a weekly gift to remind us of where we find ultimate rest. That's why Justin Buzzard, he says, I don't keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath keeps me. I know that to be true. Entering God's rest also happens to be a worship act by being missional to the culture. It's a missionary thing to be in rest because we live in a culture that is scratching and clawing and crawling over itself to go the other way as fast and as hard as it, as it can. And we stop in the middle of it and we point in a different direction. We are comfortably unfinished in a culture where people are not comfortably unfinished. And a countercultural rest points to a countercultural rest giver. It's a very missionary thing to be in rest to be in rest. And then finally, it brings hope. Entering God's rest brings us hope. Brings us hope. There's an ultimate Sabbath rest. Just like there's an ultimate communion coming, and a new banqueting table where we will be with Christ again as a king, right? There, there will be an ultimate wedding, even though we have the shadow of that thing today. There will be an ultimate Sabbath where all work ceases even in our unfinished bodies, pockmarked with sin. This is why we see Hebrews 4, the author saying, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Yeah, you're Sabbathing, but there still remains a Sabbath rest. He's talking about heaven. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So as we finish, I'm just going to ask you a couple key questions. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to exit this. Where do you trust your busyness? Not your business, your busyness, your restlessness. Where do you trust that to bring you something the cross has already brought you? What is your work behind the work gifting you? Is it an identity? Is it for security? As I've asked myself this question, I find for me it's security a lot. It's security. I don't know if I'll ever have enough. I don't know if we'll we'll ever make it. So I work harder. It's work behind the work. It's work void of trust. What are, what, are you, what are you hungry? What are you grabbing on? That the gospel has given you that you're not able to get your arms around. 
Where is entering God's rest hard for you? Is it a theological issue? Is it a hard issue? How? These are questions you need to ask yourself as we worship today. And then there's some of you in here that are far from Christ, and you might not call yourself a Christian at all. And let me just tell you, the restless heart that you have and the restlessness that you've always had, you were designed to find rest in things not sleep, things not leisure. You, you're never going to get that security that's going to give you rest. It won't happen. The power, the glory, the comfort, the identity will not give you, gift you that rest. There is one one rest giver, one rest giver, and it's Christ. So yes, you repent from your sins, and I know you've probably heard that much of your life. You repent from your sins, but you also repent from being a sinner, one who is chasing after things by working behind the work. That's a clue to you, friend. If that's you, that's a clue to you. That there is a better rest giver than what you've already given your life to. So let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for we're about to take communion, which again is another thing that is a, a shadow of a true form, which is you. You are our broken bread. You are our spilt wine or our blood. And as we take that, we don't take it just in remembrance of what you've done, even though we do and we celebrate it. We take it as an image also of what is to come. And not just a communion is waiting for us, but an ultimate wedding is waiting for us. And not just an ultimate wedding, but an ultimate Sabbath, a rest with no work because the work is finished and Christ has become our rest, the true Sabbath. Father, for you have made your people a Sabbath people, not just one day a week, but every second of every day. Yet you have given us, you have given us a time that we call Sabbath. And Lord, we don't chase after it so you like us more or you're more impressed. We do it because we glory in you. Father, I accept your gift. I accept your gift as a Sabbath. Thank you. I accept your gift. And I will use and steward your gift for your glory and for my joy that I will work better because I've rested better. Lord, I repent from abusing rest and abusing work at the same time. Taking your design and dropping it. Lord, I repent for finding things not rest to find refuge in, isolation, escape, leisure, looking for anything to give me what you so freely offer. So Lord, as a church, we repent, we turn, we turn towards you, we turn towards a better rest. And as we take communion, as the songs roll on, God, Lord, show us where we can do this better. Not to be better in your eyes, but to enjoy you more. Father, we love you and we thank you. You're so sweet to us and you're such a wise and brilliant king. We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.